So if self-efficacy is one of the strongest predictors of change behaviors, you know what one of the best predictors of getting through stressful times is? It's social support. Social support. If you only had, you know, one arrow in your quiver to get through hard times, it's other people. It's more important even than money, it turns out. Welcome back to the Most Hated Effort Podcast, where we explore the human experience of money. I'm your host, Sean Maslick. Today, I am delighted to have Dr. Moira Summers on the podcast for her second appearance. Dr. Summers is a psychologist, family wealth consultant, and executive coach. She specializes in the psychology of money. You'll hear during our conversation the depth of knowledge she has on this issue. What I appreciate about Dr. Summers is her ability to open space to allow others to tell their story so that other people can feel heard and valued when they're trying to explain their experience with money, something that doesn't always happen in the financial services industry. In Dr. Summer's professional work, she addresses matters that range from highly personal concerns, so our personal relationship with money for both families and individuals, all the way up to broader services, design, and structural issues affecting financial follow-through and equitable access to information and products. Dr. Summer's book, Advice That Sticks, How to Give Financial Advice That People Will Follow is fantastic and I highly recommend it to anyone who is giving financial services advice. Today, we discuss financial stability and how it impacts us all, no matter what our income bracket is, and how financial stability is a foundation for us to start building on. Everything's welcome here. It's just experience. It's just data. What we're going to try to figure out is how do we use that to craft more of the experiences that you want and fewer the ones you don't. But you have to create this. You have to have a level of comfort with having deeper conversations in order to uncover some of these things that can inadvertently thwart financial stabilization no matter where people are on the wealth spectrum. We also discuss how our psychological traits impact the way we think and feel about money. We explore this idea of cultivating financial self-efficacy and how this self-efficacy is one of the leading indicators for making long-term sustainable behavior change, something that many of us aspire towards in our financial lives. Dr. Summers is passionate and cares a lot about financial accessibility and how our industry needs to think differently in many domains, including are our services and products accessible for everyone? This was a wonderful conversation. I am sure you're gonna enjoy it. If you've been enjoying these conversations, you can support the podcast in one or two ways. You can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, or you can send this episode to a family, friend, or colleague. And now I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Moyer Summers. Dr. Summers, welcome back to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. I always enjoy speaking to you. I feel like your tone and demeanor calms me. So uh, I hope the audience feel a nice soothing conversation because I, I think we will be able to have a good conversation today. So thank you for coming back on the show. It's been about three years, I think. 
And I'm sure you've been up to a lot of new, exciting projects in the last three years. No real shortage of interesting things to work on, really. When I mean, the world of money just encompasses so much. So it, it always leads me down different trails and the challenge is staying focused. <laughs> staying focused. I'm working on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said the world of money leads you down to many different paths. I've always been curious and I've never asked and I've never actually heard you talk about this on another podcast. But your, your training, I believe your PhD is in neuropsychology. How did you get down this path that you speak to in terms of financial services? So as a neuropsychologist, I was part of the healthcare system, of course, in, in Canada and a faculty member at the medical school at the University of Manitoba. And one of the things that healthcare practitioners are taught from the earliest days is just the relationship between economic well-being and your economic status, your, your, your standing, and how much poverty contributes to poor health outcomes. Of course, when you're working within the healthcare system, there's often precious little that you can do as an individual practitioner to, to influence that. But nevertheless, we're, we're educated about it and we educate our students about it. And Many people go on to be strong advocates in their personal lives. They, they work strongly in the anti-poverty domains. But one of the things that I became aware of really early on was that it's not just poverty that contributes to imperiled health. It's often our relationships to money and around money so that you can be solidly within the middle class or, or even affluent but if you are in constant conflict with your spouse about financial issues, if you are hemorrhaging money every month to adult children, if you don't believe that you're worthy of the money that you're getting, if you are running a business and you don't know how to set boundaries around your money with staff or customers, your well-being is going to be profoundly influenced, even though you aren't at that ostensibly struggling level. And so as a therapist that just became intriguing to me. And I realized how poorly equipped most mental health professionals are to deal with the thing that the majority of Canadians say is their biggest source of stress, which is their financial life. So that led to a period of intensive self-study and credentialing in this area at a time when there, there wasn't a lot that was particularly social science-based, but nevertheless, it was an interesting journey um, getting right into the the books with individual families and with business owners to see what was happening, what was what was helpful in terms of new habit formation, what was disastrous, what kinds of tasks do people dig into, what do they hate? Spoiler alert: people really hate budgeting. So for mm -hmm. you financial advisors out there, they hate tracking. <laughs> they just they hate tracking alone, let alone budgeting. So. That's how I got into this area. And then because I was also doing research at the same time about what makes it hard for people to follow financial advice, somebody got wind of me and asked me to bring that, that data about non-implementation to the financial domain. So that's how I got here. You know, there's a lot of people listening who I feel are happy you got here because they've read your book and your work and it has really helped them understand this 
non-compliant or why we, I guess non-compliance is a tricky word because who's not compliant in this situation? Uh, the, but they're happy this book came out because implementation is a, is a challenge. Actually, let's speak to this non-compliant. Often in, in the medical world or financial world, we hear, oh, this person is non-compliant. But who really is non-compliant here? It's, it's a great question. I'm, in my book, it's one of the first things that I take aim at because that word itself is so power-laden, isn't it? Like yeah. there's this, I am the expert and <laughs> I'm going to tell you what to do and your job is merely to comply. And there's none of this sense of we are co-creators of the solution. There's none of the sense that you know a whole lot more about your life as the recipient of said advice. And I need to understand the context in which this advice lands before I even open my mouth. So in medical schools, that awareness has been driving medical training for probably four decades now. And we generally, I mean, we train physicians not to use the word noncompliance. There has been a lot of noncompliance around the use of the, the alternative because <laughs> <laughs> Because it's still in our hearts and our minds that it's the patient or the client's problem if they don't accept our advice. It's their fault. And in the little bit of data that is actually available for this, it comes down clearly on it's actually that the clients account for less of the variance for you statistical wonks out there. Client decisions and personalities account for less of the variance in non-adherence than do advisor characteristics and the characteristics of the team that surround the advisor. So here's a short example, a, a simple example is um, how easily understood are you when you talk to your clients? How much jargon do you use? How much airspace do you take up when you're talking? These are things that are far stronger predictors of follow-through than any kind of know-your-client assessment turns out to be. But what does the industry index on? Oh, all of that know-your-client stuff as opposed to, hello, what are you doing behaviorally yourself in these meetings? I really appreciate that, that, that focus that you've had on helping us realize that, wow, we really as advisors have a big impact in this non-implementation, bigger than, the, to your point here, about the clients. And yeah, we hide behind this jargon all the time. And your work really makes me reflect on myself on what is the point of the work I'm doing? Is it to be compliant? Of course, I need to be compliant, like I need to follow compliance. But what is the deeper level of the work I do? It Your work makes me think about that. And your, your book, help me recognize that no no there i have this responsibility to whether it's meeting the client where they're at to have self-discovery on myself why am i using jargon so much for this greater idea that we, we you know this is where i think we can bring in that you and i kind of briefly talked about today but i think all the work we do is around the sense of financial stability and this is what really spoke to me is because when i'm with the client Again, going back to thinking about your book and this idea of financial stability, what is my role? Is it to sell the client something? Is it to implement, like, is it to get them to buy something? Yeah, but the deeper thing I think we're all trying to get is this financial stability. So then we can enjoy our lives. So then we're not feeling time scarcity or having this feeling lack of. 
I think if we take that approach of like financial stability is the goal, whether we're talking macro level or individual level, I think we could progress quite well in terms of this experience we all have around money. So I'm going to turn it over to you because this is your area, but what, what is financial stability to you and what impact does it have on individuals? I think it's the kind of the, the earliest level of interventions that we're, we're looking for. And we know that if we can lift people out of financial instability, financial chaos, and get them at least, you know, onto dry ground, then so much more becomes possible. I have worked with clients across the wealth spectrum from the wealthiest people, some of the wealthiest families in the world to some of the poorest people walking the streets. And what I know is that it is not the same. Not everybody is in the same boat as they, as they said during COVID, we're all in the same storm, but we are not in the same boat. If we can figure out what are the levers that we can be pushing and pulling to try and make a difference in our work whether it's directly with the clients in front of us or in some of our our volunteerism or the committees that we serve on for our various professions, what can we be doing differently? Back in the day when I was doing a lot of financial recovery work with people who are really struggling with debt, what the goal was was to get people to this point of being able to understand the flow of money in and out of their lives, even when that flow was really erratic. I'm doing some work with a union for service professional, service industry professionals right now. So, you know, hairdressers and makeup artists and waiters, where some nights you have phenomenal nights and some nights you have terrible nights. And so what is it you know, the financial advising, one of the first things the advisors do is say, so how much do you make per year? You know, or, or give me your pay stub. Well, let me tell you, I don't have a pay stub. Or a great deal of the money that I work isn't on this pay stub. And so if they don't have access to good financial advice, which the majority of people don't because the industry... I'm going to say, use that advisedly as opposed to profession because the industry isn't set up for them to do that. Then they're just kind of watching what other people do. What do their colleagues do? And they develop incredible strengths in hustling, right? They, they can pick up extra shifts and they know how to, they know how to make extra money in a week, but they often are so depleted by working so hard that then their money is, they're just not conscious of it, where it's going. They haven't been educated on what does it mean to save? What's the 50, 30, 20 rule for a service industry professional? Where do you even go with this stuff? I have one colleague who works primarily with sex industry workers. And what does it mean to put savings away? Where exactly do you put the savings? How do you hide them from your pimp? How do, you, how do you get away from this life? So these are all issues of getting out of, of incredible instability, starting where you are with stuff that you can do given your life circumstance right now. And it requires people to get out of sort of the, this is ideally how financial planning should work, or this is ideally how credit counseling should work, and ask the clients themselves, 
what do you already know how to do? Think of a time when you've been really proud of, of how you've managed. You know all these things from your degree as a, in, in positive psychology, Sean, that, that often if we can think about what we've done well and, and call up models of doing things well, already we can begin to haul ourselves onto the shore. And if we can get a vision that something better is possible, and if we can begin to really paint out what that vision is like, often there's a gravitational pull that's exerted by the future, by a future that's painted by that client in the session with you that allows them to decide, you know what, I'm not going to hang around my shift at the bar and, and just hang out with colleagues because that always results in this certain cascade of spending that I want to try to put a stop to so that I can do some other things with it. That's one example. So those are the things that we're looking at. How do we take people where they are, look at the skills they already have? People who live below the poverty line, believe me, they have mad skills in financial management. And so how do we utilize those in a way that lifts them out of this constant instability? Part of it is through our individual work with them, for sure. Part of it is absolutely also in looking at the systems that we're part of, you know, the forms that our firms require us to give to clients or how the bank operates, who the bank gives loans to, even how the, you know, what are the however many C's of credit, sometimes you see four C's, sometimes you see six C's, but how do the C's of credit actually work for people who weren't born in this country? Turns out, can't pass go. Can't, you can't even get access to most loans if you weren't born in this country and you haven't worked here for a while and built up things. That, and it doesn't matter even if you have, I was part of a study with the, the, the government of Canada did for women entrepreneurs who are trying to get access to credit. We had people saying, you know, I have six figure figures sitting in a bank account and I can't get a business loan. So of course I'm going to end up relying on personal finance and family, which again, what does it introduce? Instability in business development. So we, you know, you can take it all the way up the wealth spectrum about where, what are the things that just unnecessarily introduce doubt and uncertainty and precariousness. And then how can you pick it off one by one, whether it's in your work as an individual practitioner or as part of bigger systems? Thank you for that response. You know, you said something that I feel like it's really summarizing everything you said there from, and I'm going to use the word you said, from our industry. I think, like you said, that was intentional, not professional, uh, our profession. But what can we be doing differently? And again, going back to this idea of what are we trying to do as a service provider here? Is it to deliver our product, deliver our service, or provide this stability? But I think it requires what I'm hearing you say is us to think differently. That example with the wait, waiter staff or the service industry. I was just thinking, I was listening, but I was 
I was thinking, well, no, I, I was listening to your answers are like five minutes long to a 30 second question. And that's one of the problems. No, right I, li- I liked it. I, I like, it was just making me think about the two situations that service provider can have in the financial services industry. They can go to the professional or the, the provider and feel, I think, scared going into there because like you said, what is ideally, they're not doing what the ideally is getting under, like, you know, tips not on their T4, et cetera. So I feel like there's already this sense of, oh, I'm not doing it the way it should be. Then they talk to the individual and to your point, they're like, how much did you make? Well, why aren't you claiming everything? And it could just perpetuate this. And they leave that office thinking, I will never go back to there again. Mm-hmm. Versus how you framed it, asking the clients and recognizing what the skills they do well. And, you know, I like your question about what do you do well? And yeah, when I've heard it framed in like, say in that situation on a scale of one to 10, well, how would you rank your financial skills? Whatever the question is. But then saying, if they say a five, oh, why are you a five and not a four? I think is, is mm-hmm. to, to what you're talking about. And those, like, those two scenarios, they leave the office. They're profoundly, like one is maybe a bit inspired to your words. They have mad skills that they just didn't recognize. So I guess this is just a comment that I think this idea of thinking differently is is required because if we don't think differently, our industry is going to get the same old results year after year. Yeah, and we leave so many people, you know, the gap between rich and poor mm-hmm. is only getting bigger, right? Like it's just I'm not an economist, but but this much I know that the middle there's just very real concerns about how we're going to have even a middle class that that experiences mm-hmm. stability at a at a level that was known in in decades past. But in addition to sort of the kind of some of the situational aspects to people's well-being and the and the broader economic impact, there's also there is of course personal implications there. Like what is people's relationship to money? Do they like it? Do they doubt it? Did they mistrust it? Would they like more of it? Are they ready to receive it if it comes? There's lots of reasons why when financial windfalls land on some people, they just spend back to their to their previous comfort level. That's not typical as we've been taught to believe, but it certainly, when you see it, it boy, does it get emblazoned on your mind as a possible risk factor. So there are ways in which doing some of that introspection you talked about, which is what is my relationship with money like as an advisor? And how has that been changing over time as I've practiced my trade? How has becoming a a parent, a spouse, a child of older parents, how have all of these normal life transitions affected how I think about money, where I rate its importance relative to the other things that matter in my life? What have I come to see as I've witnessed my own clientele in their financial journey? If you are willing to do some of that work yourself, then it's much easier to comfortably ask those questions of your clients. It's kind of like, everything's welcome here. Right? Mm-hmm. It's just experience. It's just data. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to try to figure out is how do we use that to craft more of the experiences that you want and fewer the ones you don't. But you have to create this, you have to have a level of comfort with having deeper conversations in order to uncover some of these things that can 
inadvertently thwart financial stabilization, no matter where people are in the wealth spectrum. As you say that, I just think back to like even eight years ago, seven years ago for myself, and how much of my unconscious relationship with money was impacting how I was showing up with clients as someone who really believed in saving, like very rigid beliefs on saving, until I, to your point, did my own introspective work to realize where that was born from why. Mm-hmm. I reflect back. I know I, like if I had a couple in, I was very much siding with the individual who had beliefs that were shared with mine. And I believe that to be right, as opposed to the right thing is... Well, what, duh. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, and this is going back to your comment about our industry needs to think differently. And I think for us who are in these positions to give advice around money, really need to be careful in terms of what we're actually saying and like, why are we saying the things that we are? Because it can be quite, I mean, it has a big impact and it can be damaging in some cases. Like, you know, I just imagine a situation where couples arguing about money, one thinks that they need to save more, the other one doesn't, and they come see someone like myself and my verbiage, my tone, everything is probably leaning towards that one person that they're right, even though I don't understand anything about their like actual life. So I think I just going back to this thing that we need to think differently. How do you move from industry to profession in any domain? Well, there's things like training standards and codes of conduct, registration requirements, continuing education requirements, ethics training, But also, you know, an industry has to be looking at the financial incentives and disincentives that exist and be trying to to remove them. It's a perennial problem in medicine. Mm -hmm. How much more is it a, a problem within financial services? And so you think about the spectrum of financial services out there, accountants, you know, I think of that as a profession. Mm-hmm. They have got all the the hallmarks of that with very, very rigorous standards in place. And yet, the financial crisis of 2008 couldn't have happened without the participation of some accountants who were trained by the broader system to look the other way and who were not immune to the disincentives and the incentives. So right now I'm, I'm working on a, a book that's looking at why financial service professionals go rogue. You know, how, how is it? Who, who are these people that, that get involved in financial scandals who rob their clients? How does that happen? You know, is this something that if we could just give people a, a questionnaire that screens out psychopathy or, you know, that identifies psychopathy or sociopathy that these things wouldn't happen? Are they just all slathering psychopaths? Is that how it, this happens? Or is it more subtle than that? Turns out there's not a huge amount of data on this. So it's, it's kind of, <laughs> it is difficult to find something that isn't just theory based, but I'm, I'm writing the book and conjunction with a colleague from the UK who's spent, a lawyer, who's spent her career trying to get recompense for people who were at the victimization end of this. So that too leads to reflections about how do people become financially stable? And another pathway to it, Sean, is 
through education. You're harder to take advantage of if you are educated and also if you're financially conscious. Uh, you think about Bernie Madoff had a lot of highly, highly educated clients, but the trust that he engendered in them was so tremendously high that they went, they stopped paying attention. They stopped asking questions. And the institutions that surrounded him, as, you know, with his rock star status, also weren't asking some of the hard questions. So for me, there's this constant interplay about what can, what can be done at the level of the individual, what can be done at the level of support systems, formal and informal, what can be done from, you know, a sort of a regulatory perspective, because the judicial answer to things is the last resort. And it, you know, it's not preventative at all. It's simply punitive. And, you know, most people I know have been involved in it. I've not had a good time with it. So, yeah, I think about what is it for financial advisors who themselves are not financially stable? What does that set them up for? Turns out sets them up for not good things. Probably a lot of rationalization, why I can do this thing that might breach ethics or yeah. allowing the internal greed to step in the way or overshadow mm -hmm. the client's needs. As I've done my research, what I've been hearing from some advisors here and what my colleague is hearing in the UK are stories. Again, these aren't data points, but you know, story after story of firms that seem to encourage their advisors to live high off the hog so that they'll kind of be hungry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm mixing metaphors here. Yeah, they, they encourage their yeah, advisor yeah. to live lavish lifestyle, yeah, yeah. even if they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And so then the, they will just feel more motivation, mm -hmm. push or pull, to be selling product. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting because it comes back to this financial instability. I feel like mm -hmm. that's underlying what, what you're saying here is, when we operate from instability financially or other domains of our lives, I think we're reactive. We don't, I guess, contemplate our, our reactions as much as, as when we are stable. And it's interesting to me to think about this. I don't know if there's any data or if you've observed any common traits, is it like psychological traits that might be associated more with people who experience this stability or this financial stability in this case. There's, yeah, there, from the individual perspective, there has been a lot of work done in this area. And you've had some of the guests on your, on your show who've done some of this work. I'm thinking of Sarah Fala's work. We know that people who are higher in self-efficacy tend to do better, right? Like the, this, if you have a belief that better is possible and that people like you can, can in fact achieve this, then you are more likely to be able to persist through the hard work. If you have no models whatsoever, if there are no social support systems around you, if there's nobody who's been available to teach you, then your then your financial self-efficacy will be low, and that's that's a problem. You know, the that was one of the the things that was that really struck me when I was writing my book was as a psychologist, we're always reminded that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Past behavior, right? Well, that can just be enough to make you throw up your hands and say, well, then why the heck? <laughs> but, 
But it turns out we're not in the prediction business, right? I'm not a fortune teller. I'm somebody who's, I'm a change agent. So Mm -hmm. what I want to know is not what's the best predictor of future behavior. I want to know if I have to predict anything, I want to know what's the best predictor of changed behavior. And it turns Mm. out that the answer to that is self-efficacy. I'm thinking about this self-efficacy and you brought up Sarah and they also in the book, in her and her dad's book, did a lot of work on conscientiousness. Going back to this industry of this industry that sometimes has professionals or many times has professionals doing things that are rogue, to use your word. I wonder in those cases, if if these individuals lack conscientiousness and this self-efficacy. And where I'm thinking about this is that they they rely on these stories of like, you know, you got to live like this. You got to attain this sales target so that you feel worthy and seen. Do you think there would be any correlation? I know this is just thinking. I think so much. Then we are not looking even as much at individual proclivities as we are the environment in which people live. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking. Uh, so here I am on the on the prairies in in the middle of Mennonite culture, where there is a high emphasis placed on simple living. That's a value within certain parts of that subculture. It's a value of simple living, and lots of people look at that and go. Why would that be a good thing? I don't want to live simply. I want I want to live large, right? So so there's different cultural pressures and and norms that can influence stuff. I'm not opposed to individual assessment of both for our clients and for screening people who are going into various um, professions. But I think we do need to be humble about the limits of our knowledge with respect to that stuff. The big five personality factors that Sarah has helped to kind of create financially relevant questionnaires around include introversion versus extroversion, optimism versus pessimism, conscientiousness, as you just, as, as you indicated, agreeableness. We know that people who have a high need for agreeableness actually don't tend to do as well financially. You have to be able to sort of withstand other people's demands for you and your money. Like, I am off the scale agreeable. I can't even tolerate the idea of bartering. Like, I just like want the earth to open up and swallow me. My family will not put me in any situation where I have to negotiate something because I have such an ability to see things from the other person's perspective. So So you like um, car shopping. <laughs> don't even don't even so yeah we know that there are there are some personality characteristics that are predictive of this we know that there are some social and environmental characteristics we know that ethics training helps especially if we teach people how to handle the difficult emotions that arise when you're doing things that when you're addressing ethical problems one of the studies that has been replicated a few times now looks at graduate students' ability to identify unethical behavior and to indicate what the right thing to do would be. And they all score very high on that. And then if you ask them, and would you do that thing to address it, they often go, because they don't know how to self-manage. If you know that the ethical thing to do is to raise an raise a problematic issue with a colleague, then what are you going to do about how knotted your gut is or how sweaty your palms are or how you've already run this, the conversation through your mind a thousand times and it all ends with, you know, either getting your lights punched out 
or you know a screaming match or some sort of vindictive behavior, if you don't know how to manage your mind and your body in those times, then it's it's very hard to stand up. So again, we need to think about the actual lived experience. Ours, our clients, the people that work for us, the people we work for, and figure out how do we just get to be better human beings all around. Yeah, I feel like that is just being better humans is a good goal. And, you know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking like, wow, yeah, if I can't stand for the ethics, like say I'm in the ethics department, like my job is to put policy in place around, say, financial Mm -hmm. services. If I'm setting this policy, but if I myself wouldn't bring something to light, like if I experience something like and I get that feeling my palms are sweaty, like you said, if I'm not going to actually hold, like do any action, what's the point of the policy? And like, it goes back to this idea of being a better person, I think is going inside for a bit. (laughs) And helping each other go inside, right? Mm -hmm. Say, you know, colleague, (laughs) brother, sister, colleague, client, can I help you go inside? So if self-efficacy is one of the strongest predictors of change behaviors, you know what one of the best predictors of getting through stressful times is? It's social support. Social support. If you only had, you know, one arrow in your quiver to get through hard times, it's other people. It's more important even than money, it turns out. Who knew? Cynical part of me says, yeah, maybe it's other people with money, but it's, <laughs> you know, there's, there's lots of ways that other people help us out. You know, it's, it's not just the sit and have a cup of tea and I'll be your agony aunt as you, you know, go pour out your heart. But it's, it's also things like, you know, I'll help you drag the, the tree off your driveway that was just knocked down by the, by the hurricane. It's, I'll help you fill out this paperwork. You know, so some of that real instrumental stuff mm-hmm. is critically important. It's, I'll introduce you to people who can get you to where you need to go. I don't have a clue about this thing, but I know somebody who could really help you. There's five or six different sort of forms of social support. What we know is that very, very few people who are isolated are actually thriving in any way, shape, or form, including financially. And you think about how much our financial lives are in isolation. It's private. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about the struggles. We go to these meetings and pretend that there's that money's not complex and nuanced inside of ourselves. When you said earlier, we need to think differently, you're saying if financial efficacy or agency or or is a big indicator into making long-term change, it seems like such a good opportunity of financial services industry to really lean into that. And even, I don't think differently, try to think of group settings or there's different groups that I've seen that are, you know, that social bond really grows. And if people are starting to share their experience with money, it seems like this could be a nice way to to create that bond, but help people realize they're not in isolation and maybe we make better humans doing so. Yeah. And, and how much, how much positivity comes out, can come out of that. Mm-hmm. It, obviously it needs to be managed. You can have support groups that are nothing but kvetching yeah. sessions. Yeah. Now and yeah. Just seeing, seeing that it can be done. The relatability of the person giving, giving the information 
the credibility mm-hmm. of that person. And, and when I think about some of the people, some of the pro athletes who've made the news because they went bankrupt within a few years of leaving, say, the NFL, one of the vectors by which that happens is that they fall prey to charlatans who are such amazing talkers who have the ability to paint pictures with their words and to create this feeling about what amazing things are going to be possible if they will invest their money with this person. Sean, what would that be like if you could paint that picture for a GIC (laughs) (laughs) for an ETF? What if you could become an ethical version of that huckster right, who can get people excited about the slow and steady of the race. The tortoise always wins. The tortoise (laughs) always wins. And who the heck wants to be the tortoise? But how do we continue to provide people with encouragement? You know, one of the major banks for years had had this really positive slogan, which was, you're richer than you think. (laughs) And I don't know, it was their slogan for years, so yeah. I assume that there's a reason they kept it. But one of the one of the things that happened when you saw that that commercial is just like, really? Right? They, yeah. it, it creates this sense of possibility of opening up. Whereas for so many people, when they think about finances, it just makes them clamp mm-hmm. down. And it's so hard then to work with it if you're clamped. Mm-hmm. This idea of financial stability how it impacts across all spectrums, I think is, is in a way helpful. Like say we're, you know, I mean, not, most people aren't at the ultra high uh, net worth end of the spectrum, but to know that this financial instability can impact them as well. Sometimes we think like, oh my gosh, how is that even possible? But it is, and you see it in your work. But in a way, I think it helps people who are on the other spectrum see that, okay, wait, wait, you know, money isn't going to 100% fix this. It will make it easier and make me have some security. But I think there's light. I, I hope maybe there's some optimism, maybe I'll say, that, you know, money's not going to only fix this. And then that's when we can bring in other domains that help build that self-efficacy that doesn't require a whole bunch of money. I, I'm kind of rambling on this thought, but almost like, hey, they climbed the mountain and the view isn't as any better. Well, okay. <laughs> It's better, but what I mean, like they still have those problems. I might have to edit some of this out, Moira, but my point is the problem still can exist if I don't address the psychological aspects. Here's one of the the main ways in which you can be torpedoed across the the wealth spectrum. It's through marriage breakdown, marriage breakdown, relationship breakdown, or through having just family breakup at some level, you know, with alienation from from adult children or people living with addictions of various sorts. Those are heartbreaking issues, very personal issues that come up and they have profound financial implications as well. And my primary work right now is with enterprise owning families. So if you've you know, spent 20 years building a business and every conversation that your kids ever hear you take part in at home or outside in the community has to do with the business. That is not preparing them for their life. Um, 
and it's not building the bonds that need to be built. It's not doing the other work that you need to do in your other social roles. And in the end, it can affect the the well-being of the business itself, you know, through these other contributors, I guess, to stability or to thriving. So stability isn't the end goal. You know, we're really looking at once we get people to solid ground, can we can we start looking at even higher order aspirations for thriving? It is hard to thrive, you know, in the gospels they say, you know, you should be the light of the world and it's hard to be the light of the world if you can't pay your electricity bill. Mm-hmm. So to get to that stability is one thing. And then what does it mean to go out and and to be experiencing the development of you and the things that matter in the world that you that you want to contribute to and the people that you want to love and spend your time with. How do we make sure that all of those things happen as well? So I think about that stability as uh, I think you described it in the in our preamble conversation as foundation building. And absolutely. You get to decide what you build on top of it. Mm-hmm. Not everybody wants the same structure. Mm-hmm. But it sure does help if we can think about what contributes to stability in the financial system, in our profession, in our various professions. What do those professional regulations, how do they contribute to to stability within our clients' lives and in the broader system? And then, of course, coming right down to the individual level, what do... What do we need to do as individual advisors and what do we need to do as clients, as people working with our own money to create that, those conditions that are foundational? Well, Moira, I see the time here and that last statement really, I think, sums up this really well is what can we do to create those conditions? And I think we all have responsibility in this industry to make sure that we're making it. I know you're doing some work on accessibility to make sure that we all have the opportunity to get to that stability. And then I like how you said it, however we build the house after, that's up to us. But we should all be able to have that solid foundation. It's the goal. That's the goal. Well, thank you for all the wonderful work that you're doing and you continue to do. For listeners, where would you point them towards, whether it's your website, your book, or wherever online? Hmm. Well, some of my favorite resources include you, your podcast, and depending on where they are in the wealth spectrum or their financial journey, you know, there's so many amazing things that they can that they can reach. In terms of reaching me, I'm at Blackwood Family Enterprise Services, working with enterprise-owning families. My book is called Advice That Sticks. That's a book not for the general public, but for financial professionals, if there are any of those folks on the call. So those are a couple of ways. Great. We'll include them all in the show notes. One of my staff actually came up to me about a year ago and she had read your book and she's like, I didn't know you interviewed her on your podcast. Wow. <laughs> yeah, me and Taylor Swift, we're just like... Yeah, what? yeah. Actually, I, Taylor Swift's next, but um, <laughs> I had to bump her back to make it work for you. Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for tuning in this week to Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. If you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Summers, you can check out episode number 30, The Power of Your Money Beliefs. 
where we had Dr. Summers on for her first appearance on the podcast. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write a freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.